Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. Of course, one of the best ways to learn how to lead is to find a mentor, or even better, track down the wisdom of great leaders. And that's what the Future Women Leadership Summit sets out to do. It gives you a two-day crash course from some of the most respected female leaders in Australia. Or you can just listen to this podcast where I bring you all the highlights. And in this session, we asked Principal Advisor at Proximity, Kerry Hartland, and founder of Future Fit, Andrea Clark, to share their shortcuts for success in leadership. To start with, here's Kerry Hartland with some tips that she wishes she'd known at the start of her leadership career. I think when Helen first asked me to speak around uh, leadership shortcuts, I initially thought that there aren't any shortcuts at all. And, uh, and in fact, uh, as we know as leaders, it's a really long slog. But what I did think about is the things that I have learned um, that I would have liked to have known when I was beginning the leadership journey. So I'm going to talk through very quickly uh, nine shortcuts as I see them, and I hope they provide you with some, some practical ideas. So firstly, think about how you in, are investing your time. Good leaders invest most of their time in their people. So think about how much time you spend training, mentoring, coaching. Is it too little, too much? Regularly, leaders will quote that at least 50% of your time should be spent mentoring and coaching. I don't think I've ever got near that, but it's a constant process and perhaps um, as a public servant of 30 years standing, if I'd counted all the times that I'd spend in meetings, maybe I'd actually made it there. It should go without saying as well that, you know, you need to look for diversity in all forms and diversity of thought is key. I know that um, I uh, initially in the public sector worked with a group of five women and I thought that we, you know, had great ideas and, and were making great decisions, but what I found is that we were making the same decisions. We we didn't have that sort of sense of diversity and I hadn't really looked at the capabilities that I needed in that team. I'd have to say also that investing in people doesn't mean spending lots and lots of money. Mentoring and coaching, most people will put up their hands and do this. On-the-job training is really important, direction setting and advising. And finally, under this, I just mentioned recognition and reward. I can't speak a lot for the private sector, but certainly in the public sector, staff surveys showed that 80% of the time, all people were seeking was acknowledgement of a job well done through a thank you or a simple acknowledgement of some time from the boss rather than necessarily a pay rise. The second thing, run your day, don't let your day run you. How many times have you said, I've done nothing on my list of things today that I said I'd do? And you've probably changed every meeting in your diary as well. At one stage, I ran um, what was called the Office of the Access Card, and I was it was a 1.3 billion project to put in place uh, what wasn't to be called the Next Australia Card. I was literally running from, from meeting to meeting, and what people saw was an out-of-control boss. It sent all the wrong signals and I was told at one stage just to stop running that I was scaring the troops. So 
I think, you know, you really need to think about that being the graceful swan on the outside and kicking like mad sort of underneath and to be able to sort of have that calmness. You need to be able to put aside time to think. I know everyone says that. I know it's really hard, but it's really, really important because if you're not thinking, others won't necessarily be as well and they'll be running just as hard and trying to follow you without you sort of leading. You need to leave breaks in a day for the unexpected. And I'd have to say, sometimes this actually becomes easier the higher that you climb the ladder. I often hear women at middle management levels reluctant to go to the next level up, thinking that you know it will be their life will be more out of control. Well, sometimes it's actually a little bit easier when you're the boss, as you're able to say, I'm not having a meeting at that time because I'm going to pick up my child from school or let's juggle this around this way. So just have a think about that in terms of making a career decisions. Delegation is important. Uh, you can't and shouldn't do everything yourself. Part of the way to control your day is to ensure you delegate work to the right people. Check yourself every time you say, it would be quicker if I just did that myself. It may well be true, but it's a difficult lesson because each time you do that, you're making it harder on yourself and de-skilling those around you. I was a 2IC in a very large organisation of about 30,000 people where there was a learned helplessness as the CEO changed every document that came across her desk. It was disempowering for the staff and they stopped putting in any effort. Delegation to me shows trust, and in my view, the trust is more important than the occasional mistake that might be made. Don't be a perfectionist. You will drive yourself and everyone around you crazy. Leadership for me is about vision and direction, not about micromanaging. A really practical tip I got um, when I first joined sort of senior ranks was about reading the material first without making any changes. And it was about putting that red pen down and then using an 80-20 rule. So when you feel a need to make a change, is it 80% right as it is? And ask yourself, is that change you're about to make about personal style or is it critical? Fifth thing, dedicating time for yourself to learn and train. We generally underinvest in our own development. Whether it's reading an article, listening to a podcast, or getting some reverse mentoring, we need to stay current and engaged, which means keeping up with the current trends and skilling ourselves. We also need time to reflect, and that might be through keeping a journal or doing something else reflective. One little trick for me is ask yourself each day, what am I doing for myself? What am I doing for my family? What am I doing for my friends? Reverse mentoring has also been a key mechanism for me of late. I'm surrounded by young people who can show me digital shortcuts and new technologies. Unfortunately, some leaders think it's a, some form of a sign of weakness to admit that they don't know everything. A good leader, I think, shows vulnerability and seeks guidance for themselves. Sixth thing, work out your value add. What do you bring to the table? When I became the Deputy Director General in ASIO, I walked in and, and um, I think much to the disappointment of my daughter who's in the crowd today, I wasn't a spy, I wasn't suddenly a spy, I was leading a group of spies. Uh, I'll embarrass her, she, told, she used to tell people that I worked in a mattress factory, that was the cover story for me. Still not quite sure, Geordie, why you did that. But, um, but I, I needed to know what I was bringing to the table. So my value add wasn't a long um, history in the intelligence trade. 
But what I could bring to the table was a leadership skill. What I could bring was knowing how to form relationships. Um, I knew how to work my way through the bureaucratic system. So I was really clear about what I was and what I wasn't, and I never tried to sell myself as something I wasn't. And if I had have tried to do that, I wouldn't have been accepted. I think this goes to this point of authenticity. Um, people watch you all the time in leadership roles. It sounds a bit weird sometimes, but they do. So if you say you value one thing, but prove yourself through your language and actions that you do another, then you'll be found out as a fraud. You'll lose respect, and if you want to put it in economic terms, you'll lose productivity as people just won't follow you. One of the best compliments you can be paid is when someone says to you, I'd go that extra mile, I believe in you and what you were doing. The eighth one, listen more and talk less. Most times you won't be the smartest person in the room. As a leader, people want to hear from you, but they also want to know that their ideas are being heard, respected and acted upon. Most jobs I've been in, I've not been the subject matter expert. So I've led organisations such as Biotechnology Australia that was a group of um, scientists. I wasn't a scientist. I led the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. I had no knowledge of industrial relations when I walked into that job. So it's really important that I listened and respected the experts around me and recognised that they were there to bring the ideas together and then I was there to make the best decisions I could based on their advice. I just think that it's a really essential thing to keep thinking about in whatever job you do. Finally, be visible, get out and about, stand in other people's shoes. People wanna see their leaders and they wanna know that they're interested in what they're doing. It's always a challenge, I found, the higher you climb that ladder, that people want to roll out a red carpet when really all I wanted to do is see the world, what the world looked like from their point of view. Just in finishing, I just wanted to um, acknowledge my proximity colleagues who shared this with me. Whatever the work, do it well, not for the boss, but for yourself. You make the job, it doesn't make you. Your real life is with your family. You aren't the work you do, you are the person you are. I hope those tips have helped you all. Thank you. Hey, Helen here again. Just jumping in to say how relevant I think Kerry's ideas are, especially her advice to listen more and talk less. That ability to hear what people around you are saying and know there are people in your organisation who might be smarter than you is one of the things I see time and time again in great leaders. We just heard Kerry share some of the leadership insights she would have wanted to know when she was starting out as a leader. Now, let's go to Andrea Clark, the founder of Future Fit. Andrea has a powerful way of telling stories about her own challenges and how she dealt with them that leaves you with leadership takeaways you can apply to your life and career. Here she is now. The most stable part of leadership is knowing who we are. And when our behaviours are consistently anchored, in our values and decisions come faster and it's easier to put order to contexts and situations that we find ourselves in. And so what I'm gonna do is share three very personal stories with you about situations that I found myself in and hopefully part of that will resonate with you and you'll also be able to consider how you're already applying it in your own leadership style. So the first one is playing the outside game. And this is about being a leader who is willing to disrupt themselves even when it's really painful. This is about being a leader who cannot just see change coming, 
but be in active pursuit of it. In 2008, I was walking to work in Washington, D.C., to the Al Jazeera English Bureau. And for the first time in my journalism career, I did not buy a newspaper at the newsstand because I was looking at the news on my smartphone. And in that moment, I realised my habits as a consumer were changing right in that moment. I was paid to create news content, yet I as a consumer was not prepared to pay for it. And so in that moment, I realised that the news model of business was failing right in front of me. And so I went up to the newsroom and I talked about it with some of my colleagues. And I was really surprised that their response was so incredibly positive about the industry. I knew for myself, I was already working 12 hours a day for $300 a day. And this is when I was you know, in my mid thirties and I was totally exhausted. And so I decided that day to leave journalism. I was really surprised that the people I was talking to in the newsroom were not able to play the outside game. They weren't able to look outside the window and get a sense of what was going on in the market, on the street, with their audience. They simply were not paying attention, which I thought was really remarkable given that as reporters, it was our job to really identify trends and bring those to our audience. But no one wanted to know about this conversation I wanted to start around having a plan B or having an alternative to being in journalism. And that was in 2008. So we need to pay attention. We need to consistently be playing the outside game. We all play the inside game really well. We know how to do that. But if we're not constantly looking outside the window at the changes going on in the market and around us, we can never innovate effectively. We can't innovate ourselves and we can't innovate the businesses that we work for. We cannot respond to change if we don't see it coming. So always be playing the outside game. Um, okay, number two is demonstrating radical integrity. I had a really incredible job in Washington. After I left journalism, I started to work for a major international aid group, which was given $2 billion to rebuild Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as other nations. But shortly after I joined, I noticed some fairly reckless spending, which I can only describe to you as a misappropriation of funds. It was a real concern to me. It was so much of a concern that I wrote it in an email to my boss, because after all, it was my job as a media advisor to flag concerns that could ultimately lead to a reputational crisis for the business. This is part of my email. So if we had a big enough reputational crisis that wasn't managed properly, we could find ourselves in a funding crisis that could threaten the very foundation of the organisation. Now, someone in the business saw this email and they weren't happy. So shortly after, I found myself being made redundant. My interpretation of that was being sacked and I was gutted. It was an incredible job working with incredible people, really changing things significantly on the ground for people in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, I was angry, but my overriding concern was around the ethics, the honesty, and the integrity of this situation. He was a family business. The CEO was a reverend. He was a preacher who had the entire family on the payroll. He was paying himself 
$2 million bonuses at a time. The business was giving out extravagant gifts to staff, iPods, for example, which were a very big deal in 2008, and taking staff on retreats that cost into the millions of dollars, and these were US taxpayer dollars. So if the standard we walk past is the standard that we accept, then I could not walk past this. A month later, my memo turned up on the top left-hand front page of USA Today and the Washington Post. And let me tell you, I nearly threw up when I saw it. The entire board was sacked. USAID suspended funding. The FBI started investigating. The CEO was forced to pay back his bonus and the business had to change its name. My lesson was this, when we're exposed to any degree of discomfort or wrongdoing or unethical behaviour, no matter how small scale or how large scale, I believe we're left with two very clear options. The first option is to stay anchored in our values. The second option is to be a bystander. I stayed anchored in my values, despite how difficult that situation was, and it cost me my job. But as a leader, there was just no alternative as far as I was concerned. If I didn't demonstrate radical integrity, how could I ever expect anyone to trust me again? How could I ever expect to be handed a task, a project, an incredible role where people really believed in me? At one stage, I was facing the possibility of testifying at a congressional hearing. And I want you to think about this in your own context. If you were ever called upon in a public hearing, wouldn't you want to be the person who said, I wrote the memo. I didn't stand by and watch this unethical behaviour play out. Because in this particular context, the misappropriation of funds went into the tens of millions. So. I think as leaders, I'm certainly inspired by leaders that I see demonstrating radical integrity, even in the small moments, because if we can't demonstrate it in small moments, we're not going to be able to demonstrate it in the big scale moments that really matter, where there are lives at risk and where there is a chance for real reform. So demonstrating radical integrity, no matter what the cost or the consequences, that's my second principle. And that leads me to my third point, which is actively building your reputation capital. Reputation capital is a new measure of trust. It is the degree to which your community, your client base and your constituents trust you. If we want to achieve anything big in our career, we're going to need other people. We're going to need those people to trust us and we're going to need those people to advocate really effectively on our behalf. So I want you to start taking the time to curate your reputation capital as leaders in meaningful ways to establish and accelerate trust with the people around you. This is really what it comes down to. What is the conversation that you want to start in your career? And I know we're in a room of very senior leaders, so you're already well and truly into that conversation in terms of where you're at in your career. But I want you to think about really behaving on purpose when it comes to your reputation online and offline. Because as leaders, we want to curate in a meaningful way and a real way, we want to curate and develop a reputation 
that is consistent and 100% aligned with how we experience people in person. So we want our online and offline presence to match up. When I lost my job in Washington, uh, it was probably the biggest personal crisis that I've gone through. It was really the starting point for me writing my book, Future Fit. But luckily for me, I had invested five years in building a strong and powerful and really cohesive network. And it was only because that network believed in me and trusted me and trusted the reputation capital and social currency that I had been building. It was only because of that that I was able to step into a job process that was in its final stages. And that was a job that I ended up landing. I had 10 business days to find a new role after I was let go of international relief and development because I was on an employer-specific visa. So it was a scramble. And I was really, uh, stress would be an understatement. I had two cats and I thought, how, how am I gonna get these cats back to Australia in, in 10 days? They need six months of quarantine. So my network opened a door for me and allowed me to stay. The alternative was to pack up and leave a city that I absolutely loved and opportunities that I really wanted to pursue. And so I want you to think about the conversation that you want to start. I want you to especially think about starting that conversation beyond the boundaries of your own business or organisation. Because I feel in the future of work, certainly in the next five years, that there's no more dangerous time to be neutral. And you might have a position and an opinion and a cause or a conversation that you are accelerating within a business. But I want you to think about what you're doing to accelerate that outside of the business and across the industry. Because that's how we create real change. It's also a slightly, for me, I feel like it's a, a protective measure as well. You know, I've worked with people across all sectors and when someone loses a job after spending 17 years at a bank, they've got this brilliant, hard-earned reputation capital that exists all through that particular business but they haven't invested any time in building capital outside of those particular walls. And so they find themselves starting from scratch. And the day you get let go is not the day to start a LinkedIn profile, let me assure you. So I want you to think about building reputation capital that runs parallel to the business or the organisation that you're already in. That's how we always have options and that's how we create and accelerate real change. So thank you very much. Hopefully there's something in that that resonates with you. Though I do agree with Olivia, rarely are there shortcuts that are real. It, it's hard work, but these are my observations uh, in my career so far. Thank you very much for having me. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.